0: Bear and this is Sawdust Boogie. If you desire to reconcile being an old soul in a new world, stick around. You're welcome here. Hello and welcome to episode two of Sawdust Boogie. I'm your host Brandon Bear Alanis and today I am joined by Charles Dunbar White of the (laughs) Heber Springs area. It is a Cold, 36 degrees outside. It is cold. It's wintertime. It is. Friday night. We just finished a long day of work together, actually. did seem long, (laughs) actually. Charles, I I say we just get started with these, um, what I have named the rapid fire firsts.
1: Okay, jump at me.
0: The goal here is to learn a little about you, because I think you're a cool dude, or I wouldn't have asked you on this uh, episode two, Um, and I consider you a man that works with his hands. We want to dive into that, inspire some people, educate some people. Sound good?
1: Sounds good. Plus, you're going to dock my pay if I didn't do it, so.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I will.
1: I will. Rapid fire firsts, what was your first guitar, oh man, okay, so I had a friend, school friend, whose older brother had a decca solid body electric guitar with an amp he said that I could buy, and how much money did I have? So I marched down there he had a he was out of school I was uh fourteen. He lived above this bar called the Ye Old Barn in Sherman, New York, and there was a flop house room, nasty, seedy room upstairs above that bar where he was staying. So I took eight one- dollar bills and seven dollars in rolled-up pennies that's and I'm not lying, and walked down there, I can still remember those rolled- up pennies slinging back and forth in the pockets of my cardigan sweater because I was cool. And I went down and got that guitar and an amp. And the amp was a uh, Gretsch tube amp with a 6 by 9 speaker in it, volume, tone, and tremolo. Was uh, it uh, the blue Tolex covered stuff? The blue-gray kind of, yeah. yeah. So that amp now is probably like <laughs> $3,000. I got it in in a package deal, of course for uh like 15 or 16 dollars and that was my first uh first guitar i took it home had to walk back up the hill to my to where i lived with my folks and stuck that amp in the window facing the girl's house next door and i just learned how to play d and d sus and i was jamming out (laughs) she stood out there and listened (laughs) true story how long De- did you Deca. hang on
0: to that guitar?
1: Uh, I, I don't know. Months. Buried, buried of months. First car. Mm. I inherited my mom's. I mean, we shared it for a while, but I that mean that meant I had it. it a '66 Mustang convertible. It was sweet. Yeah, that's a fine piece. What color was it? Red with a white top. Red interior, yeah. 289 T-Shift automatic, so, caps
0: It's funny that you say that because I grew up with my stepdad having a 68 Mustang with a 289. Different body shape, but killer good. Yeah, killer good. yeah absolutely. And... uh he would never let me touch that car until my senior prom. He he said, you can borrow it, but it doesn't have AC. And I said, no, nah, I'll take mom's Volkswagen. <laughs> so I passed on it, and then he sold it. But we've owned a few Mustangs. I love Mustangs yeah. for sure. Are you ready for this next one? First girlfriend.
1: Oh, mercy. Uh, first steady girlfriend was... Elaine and uh we ended up getting married after high school, and she was the mom of my first first born child oh child. wow yep. okay
0: yeah you got you got serious on that yeah <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited to hear this one uh what was your first overseas tour
1: oh man um, early nineties maybe ninety two uh there was a Red-haired girl, actually, she was from Arkansas named joy Joy Lynn White, and she was on Columbia Records, and uh, we went to the u k as a promotional thing just as a just the two of us. I played, and she sang, um, we opened some shows for an American Country act. I can't remember I think it was Ricky Van Shelton um, who was popular at the time so we did a few theaters and then she and i did uh, some promo stuff bbc interviews and that kind of stuff so that was first gig was Limerick, ireland dublin um and then over to england and we were over there for i think the whole thing was about 2 weeks and did you how old were you 30 uh 32 maybe 31 okay. 32 yeah
0: did you enjoy being over
1: there oh yeah i've, I've been over many times since
0: yeah scotland and ireland love yeah. it yeah
1: unbelievable yeah scotland's yeah. one of my yeah absolutely maybe my favorite place yeah
0: in fact on the first podcast we talked about um a bar which i thought was the old salutation inn which was a super old bar but i was wrong the one i was trying to think of that i said the knights went on crusade was the road to jerusalem and it was like 1400s or something yeah
1: there's 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 a guitar player that was famous over there in the late 60s probably named mike michael chapman and uh, i there's probably multiple michael chapman's but this guy's from northern england right near the the scottish border right near hadrian's wall and there's the oldest road. He we're driving around in his car, and I stayed a couple nights at his place one time. He's showing me this stuff, and there's this the oldest road they call it in the UK, and it's it looks like a ditch, but it's actually the part of the Roman road.
0: What was the first record you owned? Whooey! Uh, and I'm assuming it was actually a record.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, when I was, you know my parents bought me a, a used record player probably for my 12th birthday or something like that. And so I had some 45s, but my mom got those. The first record I can remember buying with my own money. Uh, we went into the city, her and I, she dropped me off a record store and picked me up a, a couple hours later. And I had purchased uh schools out by Alice Cooper. <laughs> uh, so, and that's in the days it was a single record but it was opened up like a double album when you opened it and so I got in the car tore the cellophane off and I'm because I was I liked reading all that stuff and seeing all the information and as you open it up there's a pair of paper panties in there (laughs) and my mom looked at me (laughs) I was you know 13 or 14 she looked at me and wondered she's driving the car she's driving the car she looks down and I there's a high probability that there was some cussing and uh yeah. <laughs> That's incredible.
0: And I had no idea
1: they were in there. So Well, and I
0: think I've told you this, but I remember finding my dad's Cheech and Chong record and <laughs> opening that up yeah. and it had a giant rolling paper in there. And it was <laughs> big it was bamboo. A trip. Yeah. Big bamboo. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Last rapid fire. First is uh, the first record with you in the
1: credits. Ooh. Um, well, I don't. I I can't think what that would be. The first major label record with me in the credits, um, would be a, a Columbia artist named Marcus Humman, Hummon. H U M M O N. He's uh, to this day, one of my favorite songwriters, incredible, incredible talent. You know, some of his songs Um, we wrote together in years after that, but uh, that, that would be, and that was the first time that I heard my own playing on an actual single put out by a major label, you know, on the radio. That was kind of cool.
0: Was that your first major studio to go to?
1: I'd been in big studios already before, but uh, and that that uh, that record was tracked in one studio. I think it was called the Money Pit um, in Nashville, and then some overdubs were at different places. So I probably was at three or four studios just on that one record.
0: Yeah, you know we've talked about Darren, but I remember as a kid hearing that my favorite band from our area green olive tree was going to record their first record at blue chair studio and in your head i think i was probably like 12 years old oh, wow. i just thought dude that place has got to be <laughs> incredible you know did you just imagine these high ceilings and just space everywhere and i remember being it was really probably only a year later before i ended up in there playing and uh it's like a 20 by 20 with the control room and everything. Right. And I just thought, man, how how does he make such huge stuff out of such a small space? And it was hard for me to wrap my head around that. Obviously, we're in a pretty small studio today, so well, I figured it out.
1: Put perspective to it. Um, the old EMI studio in Nashville, I uh, recorded many, many times At the control room was this size. Really?
0: Yeah. Did it have the ceilings this low? Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: really? Yeah, it was a low ceiling. It was like an afterthought room or something.
0: Yeah. yeah. My, my band in college, uh, we lived in a duplex, and I guess the original owner had taken one side for himself and built like a master suite onto the back, but it just laid out perfectly to where there was a master closet and you'd step down into a giant bedroom, and it was... It was beautiful. So one day we asked if we could cut a hole in the closet for a window, and we put a double-paned window in there and ran a snake, and and it was a lot of fun. And in fact, I think it was like on a 002 like I'm using right now. That was the first time I saw that, oh, and big. I thought, man, that's a real rig.
1: Yeah. you know? Yeah, my – of course – You've remarked before about how much older than you I am, but my... uh, It keeps you humble. My first experiences like that were on like a one-inch eight-track, you know.
0: Yeah, that's a trip. I I can't even imagine like...
1: I still own a two-inch machine.
0: But when's the last time you got to run that sucker? (sighs)
1: Yeah. It's been fifteen years probably since i
0: do you have the skills with a splice block?
1: I do actually really yeah i can I can That's splice tape cool. I, I mean there are, there were guys that were magicians at that, yeah um I actually applied for a job when I was probably nineteen, and it was with the Coast Guard as their engineer, and so That's i sweet. I drove from Western New York to Uh, Where's the Coast Guard base in uh, uh, New London, Connecticut, for an interview. And that interview was, there were six guys they interviewed, I think. And the, the interview process was to stand out there on the stage of their theater with a chamber orchestra, set up the mics, and go up into the control room, which was upstairs you couldn't see the stage, there was no camera, you were up there completely on your oh, own. Oh wow. Just yeah. blind mixing, yeah. Huh? And and uh and and do a recording of that. The second part of it was to go into another room where they had all these tape machines, Ampex half track machines. And these are old machines. So this was it's a long time ago that I did this and they were old machines then. Where you had to, like, if you're in fast forward, you couldn't just hit stop. You had to toggle back and forth between fast forward and rewind to slow the machine down to well, where you could hit stop, and otherwise so you'd it didn't s- damage the motor. So it would something? snap the tape. Oh, okay. yeah, because the brakes would hit so hard that it would snap. <sighs> that that didn't have that kind of uh, uh, controls. So they gave you a piece of sheet music with like eleven edit points on there. And you would, like, you'd have to take out, edit out from the, from bar 37 to bar 41. Oh, wow. Put it back together and do this throughout the piece. Whoa, that's a trip. It was a trip. Yeah, I just handed it back to him and said, <laughs> oh, you know, I'm not that good at this. <laughs> so, yeah, that's so, good. Yeah, I, I, I was not, they didn't tell me that was going to be the case, but I know that... <laughs> when he handed me the sheet music that the color just kind of drained from my face. And I thought, Oh, I've stepped off into it here. That's a tough test. Yeah. Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah. You couldn't have been less prepared than I was for that aspect <laughs> oh of, God, of that's the interview. Insane. And the bad part was as he, the guy who was the retiring engineer took me into the, I don't know, commanding officer's office uh, for the last part of the interview, the personal part. And uh, the guy said, actually, this guy's recording was the best of anybody's, but he doesn't have the editing skills. Oh, man. So it was an interesting uh, um, experience.
0: I want to know about your early childhood. Okay. Where were you born? Jamestown,
1: New York. Jamestown, New York. And what was the year? Um, you don't need to know that. Nineteen sixty. Nineteen sixty. I was actually. Say it doesn't that. hurt as bad when you say it real fast. Oh, sixty so. rules. Yeah, right. Yeah, you were born
0: in sixty, and you are sixty. Correct. Okay. Yep. Cool.
1: Uh, all right. Tell me a little bit more. What about your parents? Yeah. So I was born Junior Charles Dunbar White Junior. So that you know, if you're a junior, you know. <laughs> just leave it at that. Uh, oldest of three, um, you know, just normal, great grown up. Uh, we moved around a little bit, left Western New York and went to Ohio, lived around there till I was in junior high, moved back to New York after that. Um, normal, you know, sports nut, outdoor nut, hunting and, was your dad stuff. into the hunting and stuff? Some, yeah. Yeah. But my grandfather and the rest of my family definitely came from that. So uh I trapped musk an interesting anecdote, I trapped muskrats. That sounds awesome. And that's how I bought my first Les Paul with muskrat money. <laughs> <laughs> no It's, oh it's all true. God. It's true. it's two. <laughs> yeah. Muskrat money. They muskrat pelts at that time. Uh, we're about that. Sounds funny to say God, that no. now.
0: <laughs>
1: they were about three dollars. Average price was like three dollars 65. That's
0: that's insane because I think they're going for about 385 right now. Yeah, yeah, probably so. Yeah,
1: my grandson actually has uh has been asked to trap some off uh off some farmer's land and he's he's way way off into that. So, man, hey. did you tan him or no? Um, You prepare them by cleaning them and putting them on what's called a stretcher. So So you have to
0: scrape the hide.
1: Yeah. You put them inside out and put them over a stretcher so that the hide is on the outside and the fur is on the inside. You clean them, all the stuff off without getting too, you know, graphic for those queasy listeners. (laughs) Uh, and, And then they stay in that shape. You put them back then we put them in the freezer it used to freak my mom out but eventually she got used to it and they'd be in a box in the bottom of the freezer like a whole stack of them um and then you take them and sell them to the okay you want to know the really weird part we take it to this guy if that wasn't odd enough our fur buyer was uh was uh a barber in uh Harbor Creek, Pennsylvania, and my mom or my friend's mom would have to drive us down there a couple times a winter. Was he a tough dude? He was a barber. He was just <laughs> a a little old guy with like a two-chair barber shop, and when you'd walk in carrying a cardboard box with – With all these pelts stacked up in there, he'd just get this kind of look on his face and he'd leave the poor old buzzard sitting in the chair and, and you'd go back into his back room, which was separated from the barbershop by a, like a hang curtain of some. So this is in New York, right? Well, yeah, in Pennsylvania at this point. Okay. Yeah. okay, Okay. Yeah. Uh, this guy was in Pennsylvania. So we'd go in there and he'd say, Oh, this is the kind of hair I really like. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds so weird now, but, but there was nothing weird about it as far other than he was a fur buyer and a fur trader. Yeah. Man. So, so about a hundred muskrats got me this. I was just going to ask. I was trying this, to do some math in my head. Uh, was, got me this, uh, early seventies, um, Les Paul. So to the one did I'm you refreading. buy a new then? Oh, no. No, okay. this was like 19.
0: Oh, so you were a, still I was a teenager? Teenager, yeah.
1: Okay. Not driving yet. Probably 15, 16. I was probably maybe just driving. So it was now. just
0: a couple years old Sorry.
1: Yeah, but I thought they told me that it was a 62. And I I didn't know any better. <laughs> believed yeah, not oh, yeah. So, <laughs> and actually, uh, w- uh, my friend in later years, my friend sent – in the early 80s, probably sent an uh, a, a inquiry to Gibson, and they sent back that it was a 1962. Well, that guitar didn't exist in 1962.
0: 61 to 67, the Les Paul was not – or the SG was named the Les Paul, right?
1: Well, for the early 60s it was, and then it changed. But okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so uh, at any rate, uh, I think in hindsight it was probably an early 70s, 71 – 71
0: Les Paul Custom? Standard. Standard. And what color was it? Sunburst. Sunburst. Just oh.
1: like the one that I'm refretting for a customer right now. Oh, yeah. It looked exactly like that.
0: Um, I'm trying to think of his email handle. But I can't write Something. Well, you
1: don't that's right.
0: Okay, well, we'll skip that. But yeah. Uh, so, yeah,
1: that was uh, – that's the kind of childhood I had. And then, you know, sports nut in high school and all that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, drinking age was 18 in New York at the time. Um, I got hired while I was still in high school by guys from another town who I thought were these old guys. One was in his mid twenties, one was in his late twenties and, and, uh, and they played bars and VFWs and that kind of stuff. So I, it was probably seven, 16 or 17 when I started playing with them. And your mom and dad were just cool with you going well, and they, doing that? Yeah, my grandparents used to come out and dance yeah. to us. Okay. So it was, <laughs> you know, it was... Uh, so
0: I was going to ask you what inspired you to play an instrument, but what I really want to know is what amp were you using with that Les Paul?
1: Um, I had borrowed an amp Um, that belonged to the drummer of the band that I was just talking about that hired me to play for him. And it was so, it seemed so exotic and unlikely at the time that I, some people from a different town knew about me and wanted me to come play guitar for him. It just, it just didn't dawn on me that that was even in the realm of possibility. So he had a magnetone solid state amplifier that I played for a few months and and i think blew it up uh, um, and so uh then i got a, a non-master volume my first good amp of my own was a non-master volume twin with factory oh that's right factory the... ltec speakers it, and it weighed right around a thousand pounds i think <laughs> it seemed like it to me i was a scrawny
0: you had to get permits to take it across bridges yeah,
1: and right. <laughs> Now, so that's what i'd carry and uh, and I didn't have any effect. So I just played the Les Paul straight into the twin. You right? don't or, need any effects. Yeah. Twin. It was pretty, uh, it was a pretty great setup. I remember Although, playing at a place first place that I can remember playing. It was an outdoor thing. So you, things are naturally louder. You play turn up outside. And that was the first time I'd turned that amp up to like six or something where it started <laughs> to get a little crunchy. And all of a sudden I thought, Oh baby, this thing is so great. <laughs> so that's
0: what i was going to ask and there's no way you were able to get any dirt out of that when you were playing those gigs right so it was not clean? in the
1: vfw yeah 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 or the vets club <laughs> or the moose club moose lodge or that's awesome you know sometimes we play somebody's party or wedding or whatever on somebody's porch or something but
0: okay so tell me again you got the deca when you were how old thirteen mm, ish. Thirteen, and now you're sixteen with a I've, Les Paul. Yeah, I've
1: had a Fender Mustang and a couple other things in the meantime. But so I think
0: my question is: At what point in there did you think, like, yeah, this rules, and this is what I want to do? Or were you still just having fun when you were sixteen? You did Yeah, know? I was.
1: I was having fun, but it's some, uh, yeah, until I got to be about eighteen, did I start to think of anything else?
0: Now as far as technique goes, at what point in there did you start to say, "Man, I can really do some wild stuff on this?" Cuz no, you're I've a great never, guitarist. I've
1: never said that. <laughs> but well, thank you for saying yeah, that. Yeah, you're uh, You
0: obviously know how to play the instrument. So I was just curious if it might have happened in there if you had gone from, well, I can play three songs for my girlfriend to, yeah, this is this is how I get a bend or whatever.
1: Yeah, no, I I don't know honestly. Uh I didn't learn to play by copying stuff off records cause I didn't really have that many records. So as I, as I, I listened I was a child of the radio. So I'd listen to the radio and get osmosis, I guess. I didn't have a guitar teacher. Um, I took a few lessons from a, a great guitar player in Jamestown named Jim Caraponso who died, uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, so I, he, you know, opened my eyes to some different things and uh, I used to go watch him play in the, you know, when I was maybe 18 or so, took his place in a couple bands. Um, just learned that way. And did you play in school band at all? In junior high, I played the trumpet. Oh, that's what's up. Yeah, that's it. That That, that went away when I got braces on.
0: (laughs) I saw a commercial that was talking about tax write-offs, and it was a girl playing a clarinet, and she said, can I write this off? And he said, yes, because it's helping your overbite.
1: And I didn't really ever think of that, (laughs) but... I don't know if that's uh, legit or if that's a joke. Yeah. But. I don't think I don't think my accountant would go for that. Yeah. I don't have an overbite though. Yeah, I was gonna say it your age they probably not gonna be. Wait a minute. I'm I mean you're still young.
0: Yeah. Uh, oh here's here's the next question. What what was the first thing that broke or why did you start working on guitars?
1: Oh. Because I was an idiot. <laughs> Desperation probably. Um, before anything broke, I was breaking things. Though that Gretsch amp that I talked about earlier, I don't know. You know, there's lethal voltages in tube amps, so if you don't know that, don't don't tear off into them. Well, I I took this little amp that I we had a big speaker somewhere somehow I'd got a big speaker probably had a Radio Shack speaker in it or something. And I, uh, I wanted to hook this. I wanted a stack, so it didn't dawn on me that I might be able to take the speaker lead and just attach it to the other. Lead. I was a kid. I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. So I cut that amp up, thinking that <laughs> I was. Yeah, it, I'm sure I got thrown in the trash. Uh, uh. And 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 I also probably demolished several guitars along the or. Or rigged them in such a way that you'd think, man, you you, you got to get somebody to work on this. and knows what the <laughs> heck they're doing because you obviously don't. Uh, yeah, so so through desperation, there was nobody around that was working on them where I lived, and I didn't have money to spend on that kind of stuff because I might need a new baseball glove or or whatever. It wasn't just just music.
0: So. Well I think my story's similar to yours because uh actually Logan Smith who teaches for us um uh, I think he he had the bass and I traded him or something I probably never paid him I'll square up with you Logan but anyway it was a KSG bass just a sweet copy and now that I think back in pretty good condition <laughs> and uh there was a guy that lived In my neighborhood named, I think it was Leon Animony and he owned Stonehenge Music in Little Rock. Nice. I think he was our owner. Uh, But anyway, they closed, and my buddy said, hey, this dude that lives on my block sells gear out of his garage, and I bet he can get you some bass strings for that, because it was missing the strings. (laughs) And I needed a strap, so... And keep in mind, I guess this is probably 95, 96, somewhere around there. And so we ride our bikes down to Leo's, Leon's house. And he said, yeah, man, I can sell you some bass strings. How about 20 bucks for the strings and five bucks for the strap, which was, it was a rainbow like nylon strap. That was really all he had. And uh, so I paid him the 25 bucks. And now that I buy and sell strings for the store. I realized that might have been a tad overpriced <laughs> for some used bass strings out of Leon's garage, but I paid it. Yeah. I paid it happily. But you got to so anyway, run it anyway. <laughs> yeah. So we go home, and Logan tells me that he knows how to string a bass, so I trust him, and we go to string it up, and that first E-string breaks, and it sat in the closet for months because of that. <laughs> And then at some point I got the wild hair to start fixing things and decided to try and wire it and ruin that, ruin two or three other just Japan imports at the time, which was all kind of junk at the time. Yeah. And uh, yeah, then I finally started to realize like, oh, this is what a good solder joint supposed to be like. I remember the first time I put a new bridge on a, on a KSG six string uh, that I just thought, well, it just goes where it looks good. Sure. And it, I I tuned it up. I was so pumped. And I remember the internet had just started to be reliable for information. And so I tuned it up, and it sounded great and open. And then I went to hit a G, and I just was like, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> if I couldn't figure out what it is, I mean, I moved those saddles, which I had no clue what they did, Yeah, just back and forth trying to make it happen. And finally, I found a forum talking about scale length, and that was – that was the mind blow for me where I was like, whoa, this is this is crazy.
1: We didn't have that stuff when I was uh, in those formative years. Stuff that I learned uh, from playing on the road, um, you know, in my early years was like I was traveling without an extra guitar chord, without an extra set of strings. I played many times finish the night with four or five strings on the guitar instead of six because I didn't have an option
0: and isn't it hard to understand now that you've toured and you've done it professionally how oh people gosh. do that yeah yeah yeah
1: um we didn't have a tuner on stage <laughs> it was a big deal when we got it when uh somebody in the band I was traveling with playing you know six nights a week with when we got a tuner
0: do you remember what the brand was?
1: Uh, well, that was a con strobe tuner. Oh, so it was a serious piece. And then later, um, I got one of those Korg tuners that stood up. It was probably three or four inches wide and six or seven, eight inches tall, and it would stand up on the back of your amp, and you'd plug into it and and there was a rotary switch to go from for the yeah. different notes yeah it was pretty uh, it was pretty high tech but prior to that uh the dial tone on the phone on a regular hotel room phone was an f <laughs> yeah or old, old fashioned wall phone uh, this is obviously i'm talking about 70s stuff yeah that's why um, so dial tone was an f uh, those those old-fashioned hotel desk uh, tabletop phones that would have a a light in it telling you you had a message that would replace your uh, your power lamp in your Fender Twin Reverb. Oh wow! <laughs> so there's awesome. there's probably a few of those you know old old hotel phones that uh, are missing their lamps. But, That's a trip. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought of that. Stuff like that.
0: Man. Did you have any mentors uh as a young adult?
1: Uh, well, not good ones probably. <laughs> um but growing up, I mean my my dad, and my grandfather's uh that all that was great. My grand my mom's dad was a a farmer and so I spent a lot of time out there and and uh, learned stuff from him. Um, mostly learned a lot of stuff I shouldn't say. <laughs> My mom was always so mad at him for, you know, his sayings and and stuff that he would uh, inflict on our tender ears. But but as far as um, instrument wise, not uh, not till I got um, not till I got to Nashville and uh, met a guy named Joe Glazer who's we were just friends. I didn't really, um, really even know that he was as big a deal as he was even then. So, and he's, he's pretty much, uh, nationally known or internationally known as a repairman and builder. And he's had a successful business there for decades. Um, so I, I've, I learned a lot indirectly from him. Uh, there was another guy who was retired and became a guitar builder named Fred Welker that I, I would go work for. We had a kind of grandfather son or father son kind of relationship. So, uh, I'd work for him for a couple of weeks and he'd drive me two nuts and we'd, you know, split up for a couple of weeks and then I'd be back there for a while. But he was, uh, one of the things about him was, uh, he was not afraid to just delve off into stuff so we went from raw lumber to finished product in in a lot of cases Um, and it wasn't always with guitars we uh, we built church windows for a couple churches like 12 foot tall 14 foot tall uh solid mahogany six foot or six inch thick solid mahogany window frames it was really substantial yeah that was great
0: think about trying to get a six inch solid mahogany
1: Right. Yeah. yeah. Impossible. He had though. a, he had a lot of, of lumber in that, in that building. So that was a lot of it. Joe Glazer was, was inspiring because I, I didn't, it hadn't occurred to me to, to be a professional repairman. Uh, he's much more than that, but, but that's how I view myself. Uh, I mean, his, his world is a lot more than just repairing guitars. He's got a staff of people that do that. And,
0: so you've been around to see me try and train a new guy. Was it similar to that where he he no, kind of not started at all you from the bottom,
1: not at all. He would just uh but I'd been playing guitar for you know twenty years at that yeah. point so i i and been working on guitars you know for with varying results for yeah. for the same length of time as long as I've been playing, I've been tinkering with him uh that's what I meant about the desperation thing. how I got started was desperation just because I didn't have an option. I didn't know how to change a string the first time I broke one. So that's starting at the most basic, like most people starting at the most basic necessity and, and then going forward.
0: And you use the, the standard pretzel knot on the tuners. I used
1: on. the draw blood method, uh, <laughs> because it was years of changing strings before I figured I could do it without drawing blood on myself. Uh, and and having the right tools, you know, is that's a that's an old cliche, the right tool for the job or a job for every tool. But you know, you need the basics. You need a, a good set of side cutters. You need you know good screwdrivers. You need you just need the basic stuff so that you're uh, you're able to do things without marring up uh, somebody else's. When you start working on somebody else's instrument.
0: It's a whole different ballgame. Yeah, it really yeah. is. Whole different it's, pressure. Yeah. Well, like you said, there's a story attached to it. There's a there's a dollar amount attached to yeah. it now. There's a lot going on.
1: There was a picture of me with a with a DeWalt drill. Oh my! Uh, pointed down onto the bridge of a of a early '40s Martin triple O eighteen a triple yeah triple O eighteen, and it was a one family guitar, and they'd brought it. Now you know it had, had lots of those old guitars back in the day, especially for people that lived out in remote areas, you've fixed it the best you could. Backwards repairs. Yeah, yeah. so so it was – and it's still not uncommon to see, you know, bridges on fine guitars that have been screwed down maybe right through the X braces or whatever. I have a 39 D28 that I'm working on that, that somebody screwed right through the center of both X braces.
0: Uh, I want to pause for a second and and say – this is literally the first time in my life that I've realized that maybe the guy that put screws in the back of his headstock to fix a brake wasn't an idiot and maybe that was all he knew he could do and all he had to use. Yeah, right. And that's wild to think about that. Yeah, I don't that's, feel bad.
1: Well, it's it's no you're it's accurate. Uh Yeah, it's So this this particular early 40s Martin had some kind of furniture screw that wasn't meant to it was decorative on top so it wasn't meant to be taken back out well I couldn't I couldn't get it out so I was going to have to drill down into it and create a hole in it and then use an extractor bit and back it out on and the, the top of the guitar was was in beautiful shape other than that so Those kind of moments where there's having the knowledge to do it or most of the, of the knowledge to do it. And then having the, whatever adjective you want to, the guts, guts. we'll go with that. You're trying to think (laughs) of one. Yeah. The guts. The guts to, uh, (laughs) to go ahead and start into it. And, And, and I remember at the time that, that repair, was a sizable repair, and it was a, probably a—I want to say—was it fifteen or sixteen hundred dollar repair bill, oh, well, and that was that was the by far the largest repair bill that I'd ever, you know, done for somebody.
0: Yeah, I want to go back to you saying quality tools because I think that people hear that all the time, and and they they don't understand how much it means when you're talking about it a quality screwdriver versus a cheap screw versus a cheap screwdriver, or in our case, a cheap file versus a quality made file. Yeah. And when you're talking about the small, uh, I've always referred to thousands, but the thousands of an inch adjustments we make, a lot of that can't be done with a cheap tool. Yeah,
1: true. And the thing is too, you, you're going to use this tool over again. It's not yeah. a one-time use. So it's not, it doesn't benefit you. It hurts you to, buy you know crummy stuff
0: it really does yeah if anybody's interested in um the what i call the top 10 tools that any guitar player should own i actually have a list of it and i can post a link to that i I think that's legal and i'm able to do that to the show description the notes and uh, you can check that out it doesn't cost a lot of money there's very few things you need to get started Uh, But if you buy these tools, you'll be able to keep your guitar running right. Uh, So I think that's a pretty good transition for us to dig into the scary question, uh, which is the solvents that I want to talk about. Oh, boy. So we're going to take a break before we do it. But when we come back, we're going to talk about the ones that we use the most. That I think the goal here is to try and identify some things that everybody has under their cabinet and they have no clue what it does or how dangerous it is right Right. so uh, we're going to talk about mineral spirits acetone lacquer thinner and naphtha those are the four and we're going to talk basically how it applies to us in the guitar repair field but also just some practical applications of it so that's what we can look forward to in just a few seconds Right, Charles, we have determined in the last five minutes that we are by no means experts on the next subject, but I feel like we can shed some light on a few chemicals that we use basically daily yep. that I think other people can probably benefit from having in their uh, chemical lockers.
1: Right. Which so, is a good point to start out with is to keep this stuff away from other stuff because accidents happen, so...
0: Yes, absolutely. If you can by any means afford to have a hazardous cabinet locker, you should. I know they're expensive, but if you are uh, at all concerned, the stuff can be dangerous. So let me see if I got them in the proper order of what we would call heat, just how much they do and how fast they do it. Mineral spirits for us being the the least hot, the the most friendly to use. Right. And I think we would go to naphtha. Yes, And then next would be lacquer thinner. Yep. And followed by that would be acetone, which is the hottest, the scariest for us. Much
1: more aggressive. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah, there's a longer list of chemicals and solvents, but this is what we use frequently are these four. So that's what we want to talk about. So let's go back to mineral spirits. What's, uh, give me some practical applications with what we do.
1: So thinning any kind of oil-based paint, cleaning up, uh, you can clean up parts, you can clean up metal parts, you can clean up, uh, um, well, depending on <laughs> everything with this stuff depends on a certain caveat. So you, you kind of, you don't want to just take off into cleaning a, a plated piece without knowing what the effect of some of these chemicals could have on it. Yeah. But as far as like as, you know, cleaning the grease off a a steel tuner or something like that, great for that kind of stuff. So let's take a second
0: and let's talk about just real quick before we dig into this. The first thing we're going to do in the shop when we approach a guitar, if it's not just painfully obvious what the finish of the guitar is, we're going to test an inconspicuous spot. Right. So for us, he just referred to the tuner. Well, we have that tuner off the guitar. That f- paint that that tuner is going to cover up is a perfect spot to determine if what you're using is going to harm the guitar or help the guitar. Right. Uh, or piece of furniture or whatever you happen to be working on. But for us, it's guitars. So moving forward with that, if I have a lacquer guitar.
1: Nitrocellulose lacquer, right.
0: Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Can I use mineral spirits on that finish?
1: Well, yes. I mean, it's mineral spirits is a is a solvent, so you got to be careful because you can melt because any finish. it does finish. have a level, right? Yeah. So um, you have to be careful with how aggressive you are with it. But uh, mineral spirits or naphtha, you can use as a cleaner. If you've got a how many guitars do we get and then have had decals put on them? Yeah. Either by kids or by People have changed their minds or whatever, or they just wore off and now they've left an unsightly uh, thing or somebody will buy one that's got somebody else's decaled initials as it used to be a big one or something like that. Yeah. So you, um, with a very soft, clean rag, you can – after you remove the as much of the decal or whatever it is uh, as, as you can, then – Again, without putting a lot of elbow grease on it, yeah. just gentle, letting the chemical do the job, not the, not the force, which is easier said than done sometimes because your natural tendency is to, well, if it's not coming off, you're getting on it a little bit. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's going to have bad results and that's going to, you know, leave uh, uh, at least scratches, if not worse. Yeah, so so a couple
0: things I would add. Always use a, a clean cloth or a fresh cloth cloth for each chemical, and then the other deal is I never apply those solvents directly to the guitar. Right. I always start on the rag and move to the guitar. So, like he said, if you if you're just if you figured out that it's not gonna deter the or harm the finish of the guitar then feel free to take a swipe on what you're doing but you need to evaluate that immediately if you feel any sort of resistance like it's sticking you need to stop if you see any sort of clouding in the finish you need to stop um so yeah you're just looking for slow progress when you're dealing with that stuff especially stickers that have been on a guitar for 30 years and you may never get rid of that stuff you may have to leave it but I think that Charles and I we both agree. Man, leave the story on that piece. If it's you know if it was put there, it meant something to somebody.
1: Also, if you're taking it off a pit guard or some other material, it's you know it's a different game. It's not as uh, it's not as critical because that's that's not. Yeah, um,
0: but no. on that note too, when you peel that sticker back off of a pit guard, be it's gonna, aware it's going to have
1: a different color underneath. You're going to have
0: a tan line. Yeah. Right. yeah. So again if you if you just absolutely hate that sticker uh then you feel free to get rid of it <laughs> but we
1: should also maybe say that we're not advocating the use of chemicals uh on a fine instrument without knowing what you're absolutely not you know, yeah without knowing what your end result the end result you're going for and the steps uh, that you need to take in the meantime
0: yeah, if we haven't made it clear yet, we both learned on cheap instruments at the time that we owned.
1: That we owned. Own. Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Um, so the next step would be naphtha for us. Are there any things that you would want to point out about naphtha?
1: Uh, it it dries off super quick. Um, it's it does not leave a residue. It's it's uh, it's not really um, an aggressive cleaner, but it does very good on tape residue and that kind of thing. Um, it, it's, uh, it's safety. Of course, all of these obviously to belabor the point of safety, but all of these are very flammable and, uh, varying degrees are toxic as well. So, uh, you got to have, you know, take proper precautions, but naphtha is, uh, is a is a good way to get off, maybe not dried glue, but but uh, dried adhesive from a from a sticker or something like that, because it doesn't doesn't uh, have effect on poly or or uh, lacquer.
0: Yeah, I don't use naphtha as much as I use mineral spirits. But um, and the next for us will be lacquer thinner, which I think we both use quite yeah. a bit. Uh for me it's I use that to thin my lacquer when I have to spray something but also cleaning my brushes I use a lot of lacquer thinner. Right. Do, do you use as uh, much as me I don't... Yeah,
1: well I use it for different uh, d- depends on the Let's take a case in point like a Gibson guitar that's a lacquer finish that you're trying to take for instance a neck we're going to do a neck reset so you've got a that guitar has been finished in a completed form it's had the finish put on it so um, some guitars there's a, jo- a a clear joint between the neck and the body on something like a gibson there's not usually so before before tearing off into that you need to cut and, and make a line there to separate the neck from the body and i'm not talking about cutting it off i'm just talking about scoring, scoring. the finish so, by using a thin brush with lacquer thinner on it, you can soften that finish um, along the scoring line and kind of prevent, help prevent chipping. Um, or you might, uh, a lot of times, I'll use a little bit of lacquer thinner in a finish repair prior to putting finish on it, which, uh, in a lot of a lot of aspects of repair work, you make something look worse at first in in the process of, of fixing it so you can soften uh, if you've got a ding in a finish you can soften that and prepare it for um, the reapplication or filling of new finish by um, putting a little bit of lacquer thinner in that area
0: yeah i want to transition away for a second so we can come back but I know one technique that both you and I use is we will steam out dents with a wet towel and a solder gun. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: It's uh it can be precarious. That's uh um you know, that's you're you're in in no man's land as far as actual technique. This is all a finesse or feel thing. You've got to have the wet the rag wet enough that a soldering iron will will do some damage. I mean, yeah. yeah, you can really.
0: talk are talking six hundred, seven hundred degrees. But I think the the general idea is if you had a light dent in a guitar, then you could take the soldering iron and not directly apply it to the to the wet paper towel, but indirectly apply that heat and that steam generated from that water will start to pull that dent. Now, the reason I wanted to go away from that and come back for a second is because steam affects finishes on guitars right. and f- again furniture in some very bad ways and there are ways to get around that and man we are beating the dead horse with safety but if you are very safe and very slow a butyl cellosolve will help to remove some of the clouding that you get from that fo- forced moisture into that guitar so the same concept happens when you have uh, a a ring on your tabletop from a drink that's forced moisture from that drink and a butyl you solve will pull that out but also be aware it's a hot chemical it will melt that finish as well so you have to apply it very sparingly and check your results constantly but i know that that happens to a lot of people especially with kids and just neglect so butyl you solve you can get it at your big box stores but um Let's see the hottest one. It's time to talk about acetone.
1: Right. So acetone can be, if if the other ones weren't dangerous enough, acetone <laughs> yeah. will immediately melt nitro finish. Um, just on even con- if it's looking at it, it's on, gonna yeah on yeah. contact. Even if you uh, yeah on contact. So um, it, it certainly has has uses. Uh, but it will it will melt a lot of stuff. It's it's also very fast, fast drying. But um, by that time the damage is done, and if you sure. use it in the wrong circumstance. Uh, recently we were trying to um, replace a little piece of of missing binding on a binding repair job on a guitar, and I'm not sure where I first heard this, but uh, if you put some acetone in a in a baby food jar kind of thing, small glass jar, obviously it'll melt through certain kinds of plastic too, so you have to be careful with that so a lacquer and lacquer thinner uh, so yeah, so you put you take a, some scrap binding and you you just put it in let it sit in this you know we're talking about a a half an inch or less in the in this jar. Of, uh, of acetone and this binding over the next couple hours, depending on the makeup of that particular binding will start to melt and then kind of turn into a, of a moldable putty of some nature that you can fix your gap in your binding or your break in your binding sort of like a, I don't know what would you call like it like, a, like a paste yeah. or something. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and then after that dries, you can touch that up with a little lacquer and it, it, uh, it's a, it's a very, very good way of saving a, 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 a you know, ugly spot. Another thing about acetone is, uh, it's uh, being the most of the ones that we've covered. It's the most aggressive, hottest acting, uh, it will also affect your skin or can. So you want to, you know, you want to wash after using it. Wear gloves if necessary. Um, acetone can also uh, dissolve uh, super glue, and we, in in a lot of repair stuff, super glue is a go-to for, for little or big things. So. The thing is, is, is you can't just say, well, I got too much. I've used a little super glue on here, but I got too much on the finish. So I'm going to dissolve that with, with acetone. You can't, it doesn't work that way.
0: So I think it's important for you to back. If you did that, back yourself out of that problem, what would you do?
1: Okay. If, if I'm working on a, a, a dent finish or some or a, a dent in a finish, uh, just for instance, that, that was just going to be a little bit of super glue touch up and got too much on there. You don't want to ever use the applicator that comes on the super glue for a, for a fine job. You want to put it on a toothpick or something so that if you do mess it up, you only mess up that much instead of messing up what's coming out of the bottle. (laughs) Uh, So, so if you get it in the wrong spot or something, you let it dry. And then you can use like a a razor blade scraping thing to to um gently you know kind of trim that back, and then you're gonna have to do some sanding with it too so
0: yeah, what he's referring to is burnishing a blade, which I think we'll probably do a video a short video on how to do that that's a that's a very useful technique and and scrapers have been around for hundreds of years, but in our work, we use a small razor blade. A lot.
1: single-edged razor blade. Yeah,
0: single-edged blade, and we're generally going to burnish that blade. And if I was doing the repair that he was talking about, and I had, a say, a half-inch dent that I was—or proud surface that I was trying to bring back, I would tape off the outside edges of that blade. And that's going to do two things. It's going to protect you from digging into the body with the corners of that blade, and it's also— Gonna put a slight little bumper between you and the rest of that guitar when you finally get down to the surface. Right. Like You've, scotch tape is like two thousandths. Exactly. Or You've so, got just yeah. a few thousandths there that you still gotta go to get perfectly flush. At that point you're gonna need to switch to some very fine grit sandpaper. Right. But yeah, I think that's a that's a great way to wrap up the chemical stuff right there. And and I don't want to scare you guys away. And I want to put things into perspective for you. So when your wife or your mother or your aunt is cleaning her fingernail polish, she's using acetone. Right, right. So it's not like you need to go suit up in a hazmat suit right. and have fans going for intake and exhaust. We just want you to understand that these things can ruin a vintage finish or an anything. They can They can Yo. do damage. So just be careful, be aware, find a test spot, use clean rags, store it and dispose of it properly. Charles, I think it's time to ask you some serious final thoughts. (laughs) Um, What is your advice for anybody who desires to work with their hands?
1: Oh man. Well, that's a,
0: my name's Bear, not Manuel.
1: Manuel, Bear. That's a good question. I think uh, if somebody is really into that, leaning towards that, they're—I want to say—they're going to have a, a propensity for that kind of work, anyway, or an aptitude towards it. It's not always the case. Um, there's there's a big difference between doing it as a hobby. And doing it as a vocation, doing it as a hobby can be very rewarding uh It's like playing the guitar if you're doing it as a hobby or you're doing it if you're doing it as a job it's it's uh there's a lot of stress that comes with that and um uh, so if you're working with your hands or you're thinking you want to um, start at a hobbyist level. And, uh,
0: yeah, very much. So
1: the internet is, is so, uh, so useful now for people to, to gain access, uh, to information. I mean, that's redundant just to even say that everybody knows that, but in this circumstance, you can really get some great tips from people like bear, uh, that are putting information out there. Um, go slowly Start small. So,
0: specifically in guitar repair, is anything you would suggest for those guys and girls?
1: Don't quit your day job.
0: Don't quit your day job. Somebody told me when I first got started doing guitar repair, they said don't end up in the town that you start in. (laughs) So I don't
1: even know what that means.
0: It means you're going to do some nasty repairs and, and and have some upset customers at first. So you don't want to have them at the end of your career. But I I think the reality is is that, yeah, don't start the business until you've figured out that you love the hobby.
1: Yeah. Right. I, I, I'm not joking when I say I did it out of desperation for myself for 20 plus years before I, you know, before I took a a job that, or somebody asked me to do it for them for pay. So.
0: Yeah. And I'll, I'll expand with some resources on what he's saying. So uh, three books that I would think everybody should buy. If they're at that point, they should start with Dan Erlewine's how to make your electric guitar play. Great which is literally just designed for guitarists to be able to work on their electric guitar. Dan's great. Yeah. Dan rules. That's most of what I learned from books was from Dan. If you find at the end of that book that you really love what you've learned, the next book that I bought was Dan Erlowin's uh, guitar repair guide. It's it's an inch thick book and it's full of tons of resources. And a and lot then, of
1: jobs he takes you through step by step. Exactly.
0: Yeah. yeah and and addresses vintage modern cheap expensive all of the above and Dan's also not afraid to lean on other professionals for their advice um and then if you happen to have the uh the desire like I do to wire I love wiring guitars then I would say that you probably need to get Shatten's wiring designs that's a good book for me and I'm slaughtering these titles but I'm going to post them in the show notes so you guys know what to get but that book is going to break down uh, how switches function how pots function how you might build a tone stack all those things and it's going to include a lot of popular diagrams so this leads me to my last question for you charles what are your favorite resources for inspiration and knowledge uh books youtube instagram
1: feeds man that's a. Uh, there's a there's a whole bunch of people on instagram for instance that um that share information freely back and forth so the main guy's being people like Ian Davlin um is a friend in in uh New York City area New Jersey actually
0: and that's uh, Martin Luthier King is his handle correct
1: i think it is on uh on, on instagram. instagram yeah he's yeah. also got a youtube channel uh, that he does a lot of, of, of very helpful, um, procedural stuff on, I think it's called Ian hates guitars or something like that. <laughs> so he's a funny guy. Uh, TJ Thompson is one of the premier guitar repair people, restorers in the world. Um, and he'll occasionally post some stuff, uh, Um, a guy in Canada whose name escapes me right now, super nice guy, super, uh, his, his store is called Folkway. Uh, I think he's got a couple places, one in, maybe you're in the Toronto area and one farther out West. Um, he does fantastic work and he shows, shows a lot of that on Instagram, um, uh, there's a guy a couple guys that are Joe Glazer alumni or maybe currently work for him that posts stuff uh, so yeah, a lot of Instagram stuff, and most people like us that are that are doing this kind of work are fairly um, fairly happy to to pass on any tips or uh, I just. I just sent a guy a message two nights ago because I saw a glue bottle he was using and he sent me the link to where he bought it and I've ordered uh, two boxes of them. So just stuff like that. Little tips wherever you can find them. We should probably also do a thing on glue uh, sometime soon. We should. Uh,
0: I've actually had somebody else request that we break down the different type bonds and why we use what we do, Okay. which would be a 20-minute conversation. And honestly, we probably have to bone up a little bit on the facts, but <laughs> I do know some stuff. But what I was going to say real quick is is all those people that Charles mentioned, I'll go ahead and, and find their handles and put it in the show notes so you guys can go find them. Ian, for me, is a big one because he shows the good, the bad, and the ugly. You get to see that full process. He comes up with ingenious repair techniques. And I didn't see this post, but a guy that used to work for me, his favorite Ian quote was, the best guitar tools are found at the bottom of a trash can. And that, is, that to me is e Ian to a T. Like, he's a funny guy. He is. He's he's a killer repair guy.
1: Any talk of repair um, all-stars would, be, uh, would fall short if you didn't mention uh, a guy named Frank Ford. From uh, I think it's Palo Alto, California is where his Gryphon Instruments uh, Vintage Guitar Store is, and he's by and large the, the one that kind of wrote the modern book on vintage guitar repair. Uh, the guy, a couple of guys at George Groon's place in Nashville also, but Frank Ford came up with like the idea of they used to cut the neck off a guitar to net, to reset it. And, and it was his wow. idea to just, well, if we pull this fret out here and and make this <laughs> wow. steam nozzle, we could probably inject some steam down in there and soften that glue and just work it out, which is something that I do now, if not every day, every week. And, uh, and Frank Ford is just, and he's got a, book full of of stuff that's very uh that you can get online easily yeah just job by job by job by job he's got them listed it's a that's a great re- he's a great resource
0: yeah and if you happen to want to uh, lean into charles or myself as a resource i have an email team at com, and man feel free to shoot us questions because i think that and we've talked about this a lot but It's not every day that somebody wants to learn how to repair their guitars, much less turn that into a career. And anytime we can nurture that in somebody, I'm obviously happy to do it. So reach out to us there. Um, Can you think of any final thoughts for the audience? Your silence speaks volumes.
1: Yeah, no, I got nothing. Okay. I mean, other than... If you're going to try and do it, just be prepared to mess it up at first. Yeah. So. Yeah.
0: Go buy yourself something cheap. Honestly, we give away some junk sometimes for people that are aspiring to do that. Yeah. We've always got guitars that people have turned down the proposals and just left the guitar. Don't be coming and expecting to find no 54 Strat, but <laughs> we could probably find you a Hondo Strat. <laughs> so. I want to end by saying this Charles you came into my life Officially probably what Four months ago
1: Yeah sounds right
0: It's been a blessing for four months man. Likewise I appreciate you very uh, much You've you've been a huge mentor to me I cannot wait to continue to learn from you Right on same here Um, I enjoy working with you And I'm I'm so thankful that you took the time To come over here after an eight hour day Oh
1: it's my pleasure Where's that pizza?
0: The pizza's going to be inside Okay cool All right Thanks, man. We'll see you Monday. <laughs> Monday it is. <laughs> All right. There it is, folks. Podcast number two is in the books. It was a pleasure talking with Charlie. I learned a few things that I did not know, and I hope you guys learned a few things and and enjoyed some of his stories. The focus for this podcast for the next few months anyway is going to be introducing you to my mentors, the people that I lean on when I need advice. I'm lucky to have a small stable of people that I can trust with any info they give me, and and I hope that you guys can start to do the same. They're going to be recurring people on this podcast because I want you to be able to uh, glean knowledge from them as well. I did want to take a second and go over the books that we talked about earlier. If you have any desire to turn a screwdriver at any level on your guitar, then you need to look into How to Make Your Electric Guitar Play Great by Dan Erlewitt. If that book kind of excites you and you learn some things and you want to learn more, then the next step would be the Guitar Player Repair Guide by Dan Erloin. That's the inch-thick monster we were talking about. It's got basically any situation you can find yourself in, it's covered in that book. And it also does have some wiring diagrams and some good explanations of wiring. But for me, a daily resource that I have used for the past 15 years has been Les Shatton's Book of Standard Wiring Diagrams. That one is a big one, I definitely recommend that if you think that you want to do any sort of wiring on your guitar. The other thing I wanted to touch base on again is I do have a video and a document that lists not just the type of tool, but the exact top 10 tools that I think every guitar should have if they want to start to work on their guitar on a basic level. I'm going to put all that stuff in the show notes as well as Charlie's inspirations uh, as far as Instagram and, and books that he's read. Um, Guys, I cannot wait for number three. We will talk to you soon.